This piece discusses suicide and suicidal ideation, and some people might find it disturbing. If you or someone you know is suicidal, please contact your physician, go to your local ER, or call the Suicide Prevention Hotline, 988. My footsteps echo in the remarkably large reception area of the hotel, and I reach the front desk feeling a bit self-conscious. I let the young, welcoming receptionist know I have a reservation for two nights, November 25th to 27th. She says it's interesting that someone like me, a priest, would decide to stay at this hotel. I suddenly feel uncomfortable. My hand touches my collar and the small silver cross around my neck. I silently reprimand myself for not taking my collar off in the car after my meeting. Well, I stutter, it's the closest hotel to the conference center. The receptionist giggles. <laughs> Imagine if you had a conference here, all those priests. I wonder what Anders would have thought about that. Before I can ask, she tells me my room number is 202 and hands me my key. I politely smile, thank her, and make my way to my room. The receptionist is right. Perhaps it is an odd choice for a priest to stay at a hotel, which used to be a prison, and host some of Sweden's most notorious criminals, including Anders Lindbeck, Sweden's first serial killer and priest. After he was convicted for murder, he was sentenced to death. But before the sentence was executed, he hanged himself in his prison cell. I reach a door to my room and tap the key on the lock. The lock flashes red. I try again, and again it flashes red. Please don't make me go back to the receptionist, I whisper. On the third try, the lock flashes green, and I open the door. The room is small but bright, with white walls and two large windows overlooking the courtyard. As I enter the room, the bathroom is to my left, and to my right is a wardrobe where I hang my thick winter coat, which is too warm for southern Sweden but was needed when I left the north and it snowstormed this morning. I place my small suitcase on the light brown armchair in the corner and sit down on the single bed facing the windows. The darkness of the night is quickly approaching and with no snow on the ground to make it brighter, the November darkness seems even more all-encompassing. Suddenly, the heaviness of today's meeting hit me with a force and I cover my face with my hands, crying. I attended a suicide prevention training, which will continue tomorrow and the day after that, three full days of suicide. Dear God, there are too many people suffering, too many who are lonely, and too many reaching for my help. Please show them mercy. Please give me strength to guide them. My prayer feels empty. They have for a while now. I'm so tired. I lay down on top of the bed and close my eyes. Suddenly I wake up from a bang and a cold breeze hits me. Confused, I sit up in the darkness and realize that the window is open. I quickly scramble to my feet and close it. Did I open it in my sleep? I look at the alarm clock on the bedside table. The green numbers show 7.30 p.m. Thank goodness, I did not miss dinner. I change out of my work clothes and throw on pants and a knitted sweater, still shivering from my abrupt awakening.
The dining room is nearly empty except for a man in his sixties sitting at a table by the windows. I nod politely at him as I make my way to the food station. Meatballs, potatoes, and lingonberry jam. I realize I'm not particularly hungry, but I fill my plate anyways. I'm about to sit down by a table close to the exit when the man calls me over. It's only the two of us here. We might as well keep each other company. I sit down opposite him. He smiles, but the smile doesn't reach his piercing blue eyes. We both look out through the window into the darkness. The wind is now howling mournfully, sending chills down my neck. And the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I turn and look at him. I think my reputation has preceded me, I say, and touch my silver cross around my neck. You do great work, he says. There are too many lost souls out there waiting for a savior. But I know it's hard work, too. How do you help someone who doesn't want to be helped? And how many can come knocking at your door before you yourself start questioning God's plan? I'm silently chewing a meatball which feels like it's growing in size inside my mouth. It's hard to swallow. We ask for mercy, but what is mercy? He continues. It may not be the same for everyone. If someone can't find peace in this world, isn't it better to let them go? Maybe this will be most helpful for everyone. I look up from the blood color jam. I'm not sure I'm following, I say, intrigued to hear more. He tells me how he had a job similar to mine once upon a time, where he cared for many elderly and fragile people in his community. He especially remembers a poor widower who was struggling to make ends meet and suffering with ill health after her husband had passed away. She didn't live a happy life, and she kept visiting me for guidance, he says. Eventually she fell so ill she could no longer leave her home. She asked me to visit her, and I knew I had to accept, but I was at my wit's end with her. I felt I couldn't offer more comfort than what I had already done. What more could I do? There are others too. I'm sure you have met this kind of people too in your line of work. People who will always haunt you with their suffering. He smiles his peculiar smile and stands up to leave. Then what happened? I ask. What did you do? His smile fades. I did what any righteous man would have done. I showed her mercy and eased her pain. He walks across the room to the doorway, his worn boots not making a sound across the floorboards. I hurry to my room, not wanting to be seen or see anyone else today. I'm exhausted, and the conversation with the man has left me feeling uneasy. Did he... No, he couldn't have. Still... I hate to confess the thought has crossed my mind. When you have done it all and nothing helps, what else can you do than to provide peace? No, no, no. I hit my head with my hand trying to force the thought out of my mind. I am not God. God is the only one who can decide over life and death. Back in my room, I draw the heavy maroon-colored curtains to shut out the world, and I step into the shower. 
Parts of today's training come to my memory. When you feel like the world hates you, sleep. When you feel like you hate the world, eat. When you feel like you hate yourself, shower. When I turn off the shower, I hear the neighbors next door moving around, loudly, like they're moving furniture. I bang on the adjoining wall in an attempt to get them to quiet down. I get into my pajama, take my Bible from my bag and settle into bed. For as long as I can remember, my bedtime ritual has been to pick a page at random in the Bible, and the verse my finger lands on is my guidance for the coming day. Tonight I read, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I slam the Bible shut, feeling hurt and lost. I turn off the bedside lamp and cover my whole being with the heavy covers. When you feel like the world hates you, sleep. <laughs> Suddenly, a loud crash jarred me from my sleep. With my heart racing, I try to get out of bed, but I've tangled myself in the covers. It's pitch black and I can't find the opening. The heavy covers surround me like a dark cave. There is a pressure over my chest. I can't breathe. Something is looming over me. Darkness. I can see nothing but darkness. There, there is an opening. I throw the covers aside, but the room is still concealed by the night only a sliver of moonlight making its way through a gap in the curtains. I try to turn on the bedside lamp, but it's not working. The alarm clock is black. I hear the neighbors again, moving about, dragging something, dropping something so heavy the room shakes. Then I realize the noise doesn't come from next door. It's in my room. A cold terror seizes me. Suddenly I can see something in the corner of my eye, a shadow looming at the far end of the room, something, a man or an animal, pacing on all fours. Then it stands up on its back legs and slowly starts turning towards me. I know if I see its face I will be drowned in its darkness, in its evil. I try to scream but no sound leaves my mouth. I want to run but the only thing I can muster is to stand up slowly on shaky legs with no faith they will carry me. I put one foot in front of the other, but there it stops. Something stops me. Trembling, I reach out my hand, and there it is. An invisible wall. I'm trapped. The shadow has filled the whole corner with its menacing being. It's reaching for me with a claw-like hand, and I close my eyes. Suddenly I can feel an ice-cold rope tightening around my neck. I can't breathe. My hand desperately searches for the strangling rope, but all I can find is my silver cross. I pray for him to have mercy on me. Finally, I scream. I wake up with a jolt, <gasps> this time on a sofa in a bright room behind the front desk, which I assume is a staff room. The receptionist sits at a kitchen table, casually looking at her phone. When she realizes I'm awake, she explains that I had come running, screaming to her colleague working the night shift that he had eventually helped me calm down and I'd fallen asleep on the sofa. I feel my cheeks burn with embarrassment. I must have had a bad dream, I say, trying to reason with myself. It happens, says the receptionist. 
I want to ask her to collect my things so I don't have to enter that room ever again. But I feel silly. I excuse myself and make my way to the room. The lock flashes red when I try to unlock it. I try again, and again it flashes red. Third time's the charm, I say hesitantly, and it is. The room feels cold and empty. I quickly change into my clothes and gather my things from the bathroom. My movements suddenly come to a halt when I catch a glimpse of myself in the mirror. A sharp red bruise has appeared around my neck. Back at the front desk, I mentioned to the receptionist about the noisy neighbors. She tells me no guests had been booked in any room next to mine, as they had had plenty of availability, but offers me a refund for the following night anyways. While she's processing the refund, I see a brochure in the tourist stand next to me. There's a photo on the cover. Funny, I say to the receptionist. I met this man last night while having dinner. The receptionist looks at me with a strange expression on her face, speechless for once. Just as I'm about to turn to leave, she says, that's impossible. He's been dead for years. I look at the photo again. I touch the silver cross around my neck. I'm certain it's him. Below the photo I read, Anders Lindbeck, the poison priest, sentenced to death for murdering three people. Died November 25th, 1865. Death by suicide. From the Ghost Next Door podcast. Should we take that again? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> This is Sally Chachich and Sarah Matson from the Ghost Next Door. You just heard the story of Sweden's poison priest, who in 1865 was sentenced to death for murdering three people by poisoning the sacramental wine. Before the sentence was executed, he hung himself in his prison cell and is now believed to be haunting the former prison. So we would like to welcome our guest for this episode, Albin Avander, ordained minister of the Swedish church, currently working at the regional theater youth department where they raise awareness about mental health and suicide prevention. Thank you for joining us, Albin. Thank you, guys. This is my creakish, creakish hair. So, Albin, please tell us a little bit about um, the work that you that you currently do as a minister. Yeah, currently I'm working with you know, like raising mental health, health awareness uh, with uh, teenagers. So the stuff we do is really about talking about things that could be hard to speak about when you're young. Well, even when you're an adult, but even maybe harder when you're young. Stuff like um, it could be bullying, suicide prevention, topics like that, toxic masculinity and uh, eating disorders, sex and stuff, yeah, things like that. Mm, very important work. Yeah, I think so. So it's yeah. kind of uh, what I, my mission in life. 
you also, as we mentioned in your introduction here, you're an ordained minister and um, Anders Lindbeck, the poison priest that we just heard the story about, he studied and was ordained at Uppsala University where actually you also studied. So uh, do you have a personal experience with this story about the poison priest? Yeah, no, uh, I never heard about him until you guys mentioned it actually. And, and now I studied a little bit, just read up on him, but I, I never heard about him before. No. They don't mention this in your in your training as an example of what not to do. <laughs> no, I think it's a bit extreme, maybe. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But yeah, no, and not in the like hallways either, because that's where other stories are traded. But but I uh, never heard like the whisperings were like, oh, you heard about this guy. Mm. Wow. I, I find that quite fascinating. It almost seems like it's um, it's definitely a, a thing that maybe they don't want to talk about at Uppsala University. It could be. Well, they also had the, for the longest time, the Uppsala Race Biological Institute, like measuring people's intelligence by their race and stuff. And that's something that they don't want to talk about at Uppsala University, but that, that was like a thing for a long time. And yeah, so they have some shame stories. Yeah. So this idea of a, of a priest back in, you know, 1865 doing mercy killings um, by poisoning the, the wine, it doesn't seem so far-fetched after all, you know, after hearing all that. You know, but I think it was far-fetched, even though, because that was kind of in the, in the guise of the war. Well, knowledge and because well i think it did it of his kind of idea of twisted idea of mercy that these people should have like well according to him and i i think ontologically it's like well in the christian mm -hmm, thought mm -hmm. of uh, like salvation is like well heaven is the best place and uh, basically if you die you come to a better place if a crude like misconception misconception of that could uh, i mean very crude uh, almost pathological but yeah it could result mm. in someone doing a really bad thing as you said anders he did this out of our mercy or his idea of mercy um and that kind of made me and sally think about sweden's views on euthanasia and how that is discussed from a Christian perspective. So do you have any thoughts about that discussion that's being had in, in Sweden when it comes to this? Well, basically there are different voices. I mean, it's really like, well, two tracks as you, of course, like discussing this case, like should this be in rare instances be allowed and, uh, well, mm could be a dignified thing to have let this person have their own decision and they and if they were healthy enough they could do it themselves but you know. so Anders Lindback is said to be haunting at this place which uh, is now a hotel and a museum we had heard mixed opinions about Christianity and ghosts <laughs> could you speak a little bit about your own uh, beliefs in regards to that yeah I think Christians are more comfortable talking about spirits, which is like a broader term of uh, entities that are somehow connected to another realm. 
ghosts are specifically the dead people like coming back in some sort of capacity. So, and, and it's more uh, in the Bible, there's more talk about spirits and, and of course the spirit. But there are some instances like in the Bible where, where they talk about ghosts more specifically. There's one in the first book of Samuel where there's this witch race summons the ghost of uh, Saul, I think, mm-hmm. was one instance. And there's also in the Gospel of Matthew where uh, Jesus' disciples just well, we saw a ghost walking on water. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, guys, that was me just walking on, walking on the water. And uh, it, he could have had the chance to debunk the whole thing. Look, whoa, turn a ghost or crazy guys. But he says, like, no, it's not a ghost. It's, it was just me. We, um, we asked this question because we had read different sources and some were very strict in saying that as a Christian, you don't believe in ghosts and supernatural things in that sense. Um, and if you do, they are only evil. All the, the ghosts and supernatural beings that are not the spirit described in the Bible are evil. Well, yeah, that, that's one thing, uh, one way of, of thinking about it. Because, um, but there's also those who think that it could be messengers from like relatives that, mm-hmm. like different kinds of spirits. There's the the evil ones, and then there's the the ones just making a ruckus, and, and then there's like the friendly ones that come and speak to you. But for me, it's it's we're just getting around the idea of well, if you go to heaven and uh, what heaven what i think heaven is is like a place where mundane concerns of everyday life or the big ones it, it doesn't really matter anymore so it's, it's a freedom from wanting things and it's a freedom mm-hmm. from having sorrows it's just like the, the ultimate uh, here and now thing yeah that's that's fascinating <clears throat> that definitely goes against the idea of this story doesn't it <laughs> Like, well, why should they visit right. if, they, if they're they already in a, like a super good place? And, and they're like, well, this is the world. This is my place now. And I'm okay with everything because I know everything now. There's one theory that when they're in purgatory, don't know where they're going really or where they're supposed to be. And, and that's the time where they could like go back. This is a little bit off that topic. <laughs> Um, but I'd like to know what some of your religious experience or some of your experience has been as a religious leader in a country like Sweden, which, you know, can be quite secular. No, I think most people are really keen on just discussing things from a spiritual aspect of, of life. And uh, I mean, because they're not, mm-hmm. maybe I'm biased by my circle of friends and connections, but uh, I, in my experience, mm-hmm. most people are kind of happy to talk about spiritual things and uh, yeah so even if they don't agree with each other or you know you could you could still have a great conversation if you would speculate why do you think Anders Lindbeck the poison priest is still haunting this place if he is haunting it I, I, well well if, if we say that that's true uh, well like best guess would be if, if like talking about what ghosts could come back for is maybe because he was kind of accused of being a greedy bastard 
the public like deemed it so to be uh, a killing of to get the uh, rid of the poverty in the in the congregation maybe what's your thought on it oh you're putting it back to us fascinating <laughs> we did not see that coming well i my if i would speculate i mean the first thing that comes to mind is definitely guilt um i'm i'm thinking you know i have this vision of him as a priest maybe actually reconnecting with god at the very moment in some sort and realizing that um what he did might have been not purely out of mercy but as you mentioned also out of greed and that guilt then haunted him great well i would like to thank you Albin Evander for joining us in this episode about the Sweden's poison priest. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun speaking to you guys. Yes, thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Albin. Thank you for listening to The Ghost Next Door, our brand new horror podcast. This was episode two of season one, The Swedish Priest, performed by Sarah Matson. This story is a creative reimagining inspired by the hauntings at Hotel Bilan, written by Sarah Matson. This episode features an interview with Alban Avando, a minister for the Church of Sweden. Join us on all of your favorite podcast platforms and follow us on social media at The Ghost Next Door Podcast for our next episode being released in January 2024.